0: your Bibles open, we start Mark 6, verse 1. Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked. What's this wisdom that has been given him? What are these remarkable miracles he's performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own town, among his relatives and in his own home. He cannot do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. He was amazed at their lack of faith. Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village, calling the twelve to him. He began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over impure spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra shirt. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. The word of the Lord.
1: I want to invite you to just state your intention to God for what it is that you hope to come away with this morning, whatever you came in with in Go ahead and feel free in this moment right now of silence just to be able to state that as well. So what is your desire as you're here? I want to just be intentional with God. God's inviting you right now just to say what it is that you want. So we're going to take a moment just to be still, just to be silent. I want to invite you to do that now. Jesus reminds us that he is your good shepherd, that he leads us into green pastures besides still waters, and Lord Jesus, this morning we ask that you would bring restoration to our soul, and that we would live in this world without uh, being plagued by fear, for you are with us, your rod and your staff, they comfort us. You prepare for us a table in the presence of our enemies and our cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow us all the days of our life and we will dwell in your house forevermore. And we ask that you would now remind us of these truths. Open our hearts, speak to us, Holy Spirit. We ask in the name of the Father and Son and Spirit, amen. I read an article on New Year's Eve that really caught my attention. It was from Inc. Magazine and it was titled, if you own, it's a horribly long title. If you only do one thing in 2022, stop using this phrase. It will improve your relationships and it will strengthen your credibility. So what do you think that phrase was? I'm gonna give you three options and we'll take a poll. So option A, is it the phrase, all good? Option B, let's circle back. (laughs) Or option C, no offense. How many of you say option A, raise your hand, all good? All right. Option B, let's circle back. Option C, no offense. Oh, you guys cheated, you read the article. It was option C, and I immediately um, got up from reading this article, might have been in the bathroom, and I went and found my daughter, because my daughter loves to use this phrase on me. She likes to call me a boomer, which I'm not a boomer, but I love boomers, and I'm a Gen Xer. I'm a proud Gen Xer. Uh, Any Gen Xers in the room? (laughs) Unite, right? We changed music forever. You're welcome. And I found her because she uses this phrase, and she'll say things to me like, uh, You know, you're a boomer. And I'll say, No, I was actually a Gen Xer. And she'd say, uh, No offense, but that's what a boomer would say. And, <laughs> and then, you know, uh, she'll tell me things like, No offense, but you stink. And uh, so when I read this article to her, I I quoted it. I said, you know, just because, and this is from the article, you say no offense to somebody doesn't mean that you're not going to offend them. You don't get a free pass because you added a few magic words at the beginning of your sentence that are insensitive and, you know, offensive anyway. And she said, no offense, but nobody asked. (laughs) Now, was I offended at my daughter? Absolutely. <laughs> no, I wasn't offended because I know my daughter. I know that she loves me. I know that she's joking. I know that she secretly loves to throw me under the bus, and I secretly sort of like it. And uh, you know, I you know, we kind of moved on. But I did think to myself, what if it wasn't my daughter that is making this offensive statement? What if it's when I get the text that is offensive to me, or the curt email? What about when I'm on the road and somebody in a car next to me doesn't honor the same road ethics as I do? What about when we're in discussions about parenting styles, leadership styles, or lifestyles and I am offended? See, I don't need a reminder not to use the phrase, no offense. I know at this age of my life, it just doesn't work. I need help. Learning to not take offense. I remember being in a workshop uh, with a leader and the person who was facilitating the workshop made this phrase and I had never heard it before. He said, you don't have the power to offend me. I choose whether or not I give you the power to offend me or not. I choose whether or not I'm going to take the offense. To which I was pretty offended, right? I'm thinking, who does this guy think he is? And I also thought, what kind of power is that to live with? That's an incredible amount of power. That's an incredible amount of self-awareness. That's an incredible amount of security in one's identity to say, I can actually choose whether or not I'm going to take offense or not. What I wish the article had read was, if you can only change one thing in 2022, learn to stop taking offense because it will improve your relationships. It will strengthen your credibility. And in Mark chapter six, Jesus is going to shift from instructing his disciples Up until this point, he's been instructing them, he's been calling them, but he's gonna shift from instructing them to sending them out with very clear instructions to preach the gospel, drive out demons, heal the sick. And they're about to learn that being a disciple of Jesus means you will face rejection. It means you will experience division even with those who are closest to you, including those within the church. It means that they're going to have to learn not to take offense and instead to release offense through forgiveness and self-awareness. So I want you to think of a continuum as we look at this story. On one side of the continuum is verses one through three, and that's the offended crowd. On the other side of the continuum is verses four through six, and that's the unoffended king. And then in verses 7 through 13, we're going to ask the question, how do we then shorten the gap? How do we close the gap in our own lives? Verses 1 through 3, this is the offended crowd. It says in verse 3, and they took offense. This crowd is deeply offended by Jesus. The word that Mark uses is that they were scandalized by him. Now, when's the last time you heard somebody honestly say, Jesus is so offensive to me? Hardly ever happens. It's like saying, my grandma is so offensive to me. I hate my grandma. You don't ever hear that. And when you do, you're like, oh, that's out of place. This is Jesus' hometown people. He's left his hometown of Nazareth. He's gone off and you know, went to school or went and started working his career, started his ministry, his mission, and now he's returning as a rumored miracle worker. He's got disciples with him. He's like a legit rabbi as he's come back to this small hometown. And usually when a hometown boy returns home after making it big, their neighborhood throws him a party. But not in this case. That's not how his hometown people respond. It says in verse 2 that initially they're not offended when he comes back. Many who heard him were amazed by him. They wondered themselves, where did this guy get so much wisdom? How did he learn how to heal people? Word is on the street that he just raised a 12-year-old girl from the dead, which you probably heard in the story last week. And in the same day, he healed a woman who had suffered from Uh, a horrific medical condition of 12 years. So why are they so offended? We see people, different people are offended by Jesus for different reasons. When the early church was birthed, it was birthed out of essentially a Roman Colosseum. Believers being put to death for their faith in a public spectacle of sport, watching people being ripped to shreds limb by limb by animals and other warriors. Why? Because it was okay for you to say, I believe in many gods in the Roman Empire, but at the moment you said, I believe in Jesus as the way, truth, and the life, that was incredibly offensive. Why? Because Jesus was very exclusive. No one comes to God except through me. I am the one who came to reconcile Humanity with God, the Holy. So, some are offended because of the exclusive claims of Jesus, some of us, like many of us, like John the Baptist, we're offended by Jesus because he doesn't always meet our expectations. There's a scene that I just read in my own Bible reading yesterday morning from Matthew chapter 11. Where John the Baptist, whom Jesus calls the greatest prophet in all of Hebrew history, is offended by Jesus. He finds himself in prison. Like, this is not the life that I signed up for. Why am I stuck here? Why am I stuck in this pain? Why am I stuck in this confusion? And he tells one of his disciples, hey, Go and ask Jesus, are you the one that we're supposed to be looking for, or should I find another? Because the one, the Messiah that I was looking for wasn't going to leave me here. This is not the life I anticipated. And Jesus actually tells his disciple, go back and tell John what you heard and see. We'll get to more of that in a moment. But Jesus says essentially, blessed are you when you're not offended because of me. We find ourselves at times offended by Jesus because he doesn't always meet our expectation. So why is the crowd offended? The crowd is offended by Jesus because they have limited exposure of him. In other words, they know enough about Jesus to think that they know everything about Jesus. Like they grew up with stories about him. He was a carpenter in their hometown. They knew his mom. Apparently, there's like this rumor that his birth was illegitimate. Uh, Teenage pregnancy, like what kind of home could he really come from? They know enough about Jesus to be dangerous, but they don't know all there is to him. It's kind of like when you go home for the holidays, right? Your family, your extended family, they know the child you, but can they really know the adult you? Like, Can you? they really know all of the experiences, all of the challenges that you've faced in life? That's where some of the disconnect happens in those holiday moments, right? And so that's when they launch into a series of questions, five questions to be exact. Three of them are affirmative. The last two are offensive. The question I want to ask, though, is why do they seem to take offense? Because initially they're not offended. Jesus is teaching them he's reportedly healed people he has the power to heal them well in order for me to take offense i have to believe that someone else is on the offense against me which causes me to go on the defense and i don't know about you but i can spend a lot of energy and emotional stamina thinking about how i'm going to defend myself in public or in relationship etc Dallas Willard says one of the reasons why they are offended and the reasons why we get offended, you and me, is because whenever we take offense, it's because we believe our kingdom just got invaded. Jesus is bringing a whole nother kingdom by which he says, The kingdom of God is among you. Repent and believe. I am the king, not Caesar. And this is offensive. Why? It induces fear. Taking offense is often a fear-based reaction. The opposite of fear is love. Paul the Apostle says in 1 Corinthians 12, love, I'm sorry, 13, love is not easily offended. My offendability reveals a fear, a fear of loss, the loss of security, the loss of approval, the loss of control. Either I'm responding in love or I'm reacting in fear. Fear. Now, are there times when we take offense for good reasons? I believe so. Jesus modeled anger on behalf of God and others, but it was always measured, never reactive, never defensive. The kingdom of Jesus does defend God's kingdom. But his rule is always love. And it's very rare that I am actually responding out of love and out of a sense of justice and mercy for others. Typically, I'm reacting out of fear. You've just invaded my kingdom. The crowd's offense, however, is rooted in fear. Their kingdom is being invaded, as we said. They're asking, who does this guy think he is? We grew up with him. He's a blue-collar worker. He's a carpenter. We bought wood from him or yokes from him. His mom is, you know, we don't even know if we can trust her story or not. When they take offense, it seems to reinforce their unbelief. Or maybe their unbelief causes them to take offense. It's hard to tell. Either way, when I take offense, or you do, it blocks my ability to believe God. Just like John the Baptist. When our ability to believe God is limited, it often limits God's work in our lives. Ultimately, it limits God's work of healing in their lives. Verse 5 said, he could do no miracles there. I love this part, though. Except he laid his hand on a few people and healed them. (laughs) His hometown crowd is unwilling to be surprised by Jesus. And isn't that what faith is? Ultimately, faith at its essence is, I don't know why I'm in prison I don't know why I'm facing this situation, as John the Baptist would say, but I'm willing to be surprised by you. I'm willing for you to surprise me, Jesus, however you might come through, however you might work. They're unwilling to be even surprised by Jesus. Now, I imagine that we find ourselves similar to this crowd. I imagine that there's some in this room who both know too much and at the same time too little about Jesus. And it's causing you to wonder, am I even willing to be surprised by Jesus? I know that there's some of us who are offended because Jesus has not met our expectation. I know that there's some of us who find ourselves that we're offended that Jesus might be invading our kingdom or others have invaded our security approval and control and we're asking i wonder if jesus will still work in my life it's as simple as the man who jesus said all things are possible to him or her who believes and the man responds and says i believe lord but please help my unbelief because it's there and jesus says let it be done according to your faith Doubt simply says, or being willing to believe says, I believe, help my unbelief. So, one more thing. How can you know that you're taking offense? Well, there's one of four ways that we typically respond when we're offended or react when we're offended, according to family systems theory. We either become combative, we withdraw from somebody, or we isolate we overfunction or under function, like hyperserve or just do nothing at all, or we project onto them what really is happening inside of us. For the crowd, they project onto Jesus what they're experiencing in their own fears, and then they withdraw. What is your mode of action when you're reactive? When you're offended. I find it good news that when John the Baptist says, go ask Jesus if he's the one or if I should look for another, Jesus' response to his disciple, to the people asking him the question, is not to put down John, say, I can't believe John. I'm done with you, John. Instead, he says, I want you to go tell John what you see. The blind see, the lame walk, the dead are raised to life again. And then they go back and they tell John. And when he leaves, he has affirmative words to say about John. He says, among those born of women, there's never been another one greater. In other words, Jesus sees him. He sees his faith. What little he might have in that moment, it's the same with you. He sees your faith. He affirms you. And he says, tell John, Blessed are they who are not offended because of me. In other words, keep going, John. There's a blessing for you here. You keep hanging on. Blessed are they who are not offended because of me. So the question I have as we look at the unoffended king is, what if we were so secure in who we were that we could remain delightfully unoffended or unoffendable? Is it even possible? Well, I do see it in this undefendable king. This king is undefended. It says, Jesus says to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown, among his relatives, and in his own home. What do you take notice of? What do you see in Jesus' response? I see that he's not reactive. He doesn't seem to take the offense up. These people have just put down his mom. They've just talked trash about his job or his work. They just categorized him in their minds as a person. They're his hometown people. They should be his community. And yet he responds to them by speaking honestly, candidly, truthfully. But he's not defensive. Jesus responds in two ways. First, he's amazed. Notice verse 6, he was amazed at their lack of faith. You know that the word Jesus was amazed only occurs twice in the Bible? The other time Jesus is amazed is when the Roman centurion comes to him and he puts his faith in him and says, No, you can stay here, Jesus, I know you just say the word and my my, my employee will be healed. And Jesus says, it says of Jesus, he was amazed at his faith. And he said, I haven't found such faith in all of Israel. Faith amazes Jesus, catches his attention. Jesus is amazed at their faith. Notice he doesn't respond, he responds with amazement, but he's not offended. He's genuinely amazed that they're unwilling to put their trust in him, the one who's the source of life, of love, of peace. When my oldest daughter was about three years old, I remember a time when we went to cross the street. So we're walking together. We're on the sidewalk. It's time for us to cross the street, and uh, you know the little blinking light comes on, tells you to you know you got 15 seconds or however long. So I go to grab her hand and I go for, and she's pulling back on me, not willing to walk. And I pause. I'm like, "Come on, we got to go." She's like, "No," just shaking her head. I'm like, why not? She's like, because I'm scared. And so now it's like seven seconds, five seconds. We're going to lose, you know? And I bend down to her. I'm like, babe, I've been crossing the street for like 30 years. Like, this is something I know how to do. Don't you trust me? And she looks at me straight face and just goes, no. (laughs) And in that moment, I wasn't like mad, I was surprised. You're three, and I'm like a crossing the street expert. (laughs) Jesus is surprised. You're like three, but I'm the expert. I know what I'm doing. Why would you not wanna put your trust in me? He's amazed. He's also non-anxious. We could say that even in a very non-anxious world, Jesus' non-anxious presence is what allows him to take no offense. Now, we hear a lot about that phrase, non-anxious presence, as our world becomes increasingly more anxious, don't we? But just what does non-anxious presence mean? It's a phrase coined uh, or built from Bowen Family Systems Theory. It's a theory that says that we are more emotionally hardwired together with our community than we realize. It also says, secondly, that system that we're hardwired with is built for homeostasis, doesn't like change, likes the status quo. So anytime we're in a relationship with others, we're part of a system. Your family is a system, your church is a system, your business is a system, Whenever crises or chaos or change is dripped into the system, what happens? The system is threatened, and it's bound to break down unless a non-anxious presence enters the room. Anxious people do what anxious people do. As, you know, when, if you lead an organization or whatever, it's easy to get angry with the people, Right? Why, why are you acting this way? Why are you behaving? What you have to realize is it's a system. And when, this, when change or chaos or crises has dripped in, anxious people are going to do what anxious people do. When I was a kid, my grandpa, um, he owned a ranch. And, uh, you know, he's this five foot three Mexican cowboy gangster. And um, he had a bunch of cows. And I remember as a child, one particular moment when a snake entered into the corral, a rattlesnake, and spooked one of the cows. Now, what happens when one of the cows are spooked? Anxiety spreads throughout the system. All of the cows get spooked, right? And they're running around, flailing about, and and he's concerned about the cows because this is his livelihood. This is like good meat. This is going to put food on the table, literally, you know? And so my grandpa composes himself, and I watched him. He composes himself, grabs his gun, and walks in non-anxiously into the corral to calm one after another of the cows, and then he shoots the snake. I don't know if I should have said he shot the snake, but um, I don't know if that's... Acceptable in today's era or not, but, you know, rattlesnakes can be dangerous. So then how does one become a non-anxious presence? It requires two elements. One, they have to be self-differentiated. We'll talk about that. And two, they have to stay connected. Self-differentiation is the ability to remain connected in relationship to significant people in our lives and yet not have our reactions and behaviors determined by them. It means that we're moving toward others while also being very clear about who I am, what I want, what I will say, what I will do, what I think, what my beliefs and values are. It means I'm defined clearly by those things, and yet I'm staying connected to others. It means I have the ability to take responsibility for my own emotions and feelings rather than expecting others to have to deal with them. It means I'm taking radical responsibility. It looks like this. A couple days ago, I was having a discussion with my wife, and I noticed within the discussion, I started to feel a little bit... Passionate about something that we were talking about. And I was able to pause knowing I'm preparing for this and not wanting to be a total hypocrite with you guys, but wanting to put in the practice to say, what am I afraid of right here? And to say, what is she making me afraid of? (laughs) But radical responsibility says this. If you're taking radical responsibility, you say when I'm anxious, I make myself afraid because I'm believing this story. I'm not expecting her to take responsibility for an emotion I'm having because I'm the one who's having the emotion because I'm believing a particular story. Anyway, it's the ability to allow the life and teaching of Jesus to serve as my compass rather than reading everyone else's emotional chart in the room and then subjugating myself to what the emotion is happening around me. Jesus models what it is to be both. He's wholly defined and wholly connected. He's self-defined before he did any ministry. He gets very clear on his identity. When he's baptized and he hears the voice that comes from heaven that says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. He moves about life constantly rehearsing, I am the beloved son of God. God is well pleased in me. He continually uses phrases like, this is why the Son of God or the Son of Man has come, for this purpose. He's very clear about his purpose. How does he become self-defined? He continually takes time away from the crowd to be reflective with his Father, to rehearse his own self-definition of his identity and his purpose and his mission. So then when people are saying offensive things to Jesus, he doesn't have to have the perfect come back, have to have the last word, have to say the clever response, doesn't have to be the funny guy in the room. He doesn't need their approval. He can be secure in who he is without having to have retaliation, and he can release offense therefore, but he still moves towards connection. This is what's interesting to me. Notice it said, but he still healed a few people who were willing to embrace him. Jesus is still moving towards connection with you in this room today, even though you may have lived in a very anxious way. Even though you may have been offended by Jesus because your kingdom has been, has been compromised. Jesus remains connected. And emotional maturity is defined in those two parts. Defining myself, what I believe, think, say, want, I'm gonna do, and at the same time, staying connected to somebody who sees it differently from the way I do. Because when other people see it differently, guess what that introduces? Anxiety. I love this quote about Bowen theory because our work really is to see where our old self is getting reactive. One person's ability to firmly maintain self in an anxious system Interrupts the infectious spread of anxiety through the system. If people understand how they are a part of a system problem, not its cause, they can be more confident than just managing themselves well in tense times, uh, confident that just managing themselves well in tense times will be sufficient to halt escalating chronic anxiety in the system. It is unnecessary and counterproductive to try to change others. In other words, (laughs) Jesus, where am I becoming anxious? How am I a part of the system, a part of the issue that's happening right now? I can't control what the other person's doing or not doing. Jesus allows people to maintain their unbelief, even though he's amazed that they would choose such a path. And he's both wholly connected and distinct. He's moving towards those who will still be people of peace, those who will still invite him in to work within their lives. And he's still doing that for you today. He's doing that for all of us who have struggled to live non anxiously, who have struggled to release offense. He's doing that for all of us who tend to get offended easily because of the threat to our kingdom. He's still moving to the few sick people with your mustard seed of faith who will simply say, I want to be healed by you. I believe, help my unbelief. So then we saw the offended crowd, the unoffended king. Lastly, and most briefly, how then do we shorten or close that gap? In a sentence, I want you to close your eyes and just hear this. I would say we become more unoffendable the more we practice the non-anxious presence of Jesus. I'll repeat it one more time. We become more unoffendable the more we practice the non-anxious presence of Jesus. I want to look at that in two statements. First, practice. Because in verses 7 through 13, Jesus is about to show them why he's been modeling this non-anxious presence for them. It wasn't so that they could just be self-actualized as humans. It was so that they could have an impact of healing in the world. In other words, he's sending his disciples out to practice right now. He's essentially going to tell them, I'm sending you out to preach the good news of the kingdom, to heal other people, and you're going to face demons. And guess what? You're going to face rejection. And I'm sending you out in pairs. What happens when you go out in pairs? Anybody ever had a business partner or a relationship partner? What happens? Division. Offense. In other words, I'm teach- I taught you how to do this because you're going to have to learn how to do it in the field. And you need practice in order to do that. Learning how to take no offense because you will face division. You'll face rejection. You'll be offended. I want you to practice. And I'm gonna leave you before we end with two practices I want you to consider committing to this week. But secondly, he practices from the non-anxious presence of Jesus Now, some of you, even the word non-anxious presence makes you feel your anxiety rare up. But here's what Psalm 103 says. The father, he knows our frame. He knows you're human. He knows you're made of dust. And it says that just as a father pities or has mercy on their child, Son or daughter, so the Lord God has mercy on you. He knows your frame, and yet He still says, I see you. I see your faith. I see that you, you know, just like John the Baptist, among those born of women, there's never been someone greater than that person, even though He's feeling offense. This non anxious presence, if we're to take the metaphor that I shared of the corral and the cows and the snake, I guess we could say that God knows that you've been bit by the rattlesnake called sin. You've been infected with poison. You have this tendency towards self-absorption or fear. And the good news of the gospel says that God entered into the system. He came into humanity and came inside the corral and he himself took the bite of the snake on our behalf. Why? So that you could always know that his non-anxious presence will never leave you, never forsake you. He walks himself into the corral and it's the non-anxious presence of Jesus that he wants to become your confidence. This non-anxious person will never leave me, never forsake me. What am I saying? Am I saying that We should never feel hurt or anger or sadness. No, in fact, I'm saying the opposite. I'm saying in order for you to take no offense, you'll need to become more aware of when you're feeling the hurt, the anger, and the offense. And then to invite Jesus and his non-anxious presence into that and say, here's what I'm afraid of. I'm afraid of this loss of security, approval, or control. So how then do we close that gap? And I'm even nervous of saying, how do we close the gap? Because really, it's God who's at work in you. God is the initiator, you are the participator. And yet Paul says, so therefore, work out or practice your own salvation with fear and trembling." because God is at work in you. So here's two simple practices for you this week, and I only want you to say yes, I'm willing to enter into that. If you feel a whole body yes on this thing. Number one, define your new self. Take time out, either in this time where we have to reflect and worship, to define your new self, or sometime this week, In other words, practice envisioning, daydreaming as though the new creation had already come and you are fully complete in Christ. Who would you be if you were to respond to whatever situation you're facing as the highest form of your new creation self? How Jesus sees you. And then secondly, take time this week to disrupt your autopilot. We walk through life on autopilot not being aware of when the fear has entered into the system. And therefore, then anxiety becomes to, starts to run rampant and we become reactive. Disrupt your autopilot simply by becoming aware. First, define how you tend to react when you feel anxious. How does that old self take over the new self? And then just notice when it happens. Just notice. That will be growth in itself. So as we do that, we realize that Jesus is inviting us to a whole nother level of belief, of trust. Why? Because of his non-anxious presence. And we're gonna take time to be with him in that now. So let's do that. I'm gonna pray and invite the team up to lead us in song. Our Father in heaven, we desire to live lives of freedom where we're able to forgive, release offense, and actually learn to take less offense. Jesus, help us to be, fill us with your Holy Spirit of love. And Lord, we want to follow you into this, as scary as it might seem. Speak to us now, Jesus, as we turn to you. We believe, Lord. Help our unbelief. In Jesus' name, amen.